Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240 for Autumn Semester 2023. Today, project analysis for multiple projects. And to begin this, and this will be something of a mercifully shorter lecture. I was planning to give you a really big surprise quiz today, and then I got all kinds of notices of people out for uh, illnesses, mostly COVID. So I decided I didn't want my tires slashed giving a quiz under those conditions. So I finish up the material that I have on chapter 12, which is mostly about mutual uh, projects where you have to choose one or the other. In other words, mutually exclusive projects. And uh, I'll get into some of those details here in a little bit. But first, a look at the markets, a rather relatively brief look. It was kind of a decent day. Oddly, the Dow was out up the most at more than half a percent, 0.58 percent so far. It's not quite over yet. And then the S&P was up, not quite a third of a percent. And then the NASDAQ was up a little less than a quarter of a percent. Now that's the opposite of what usually happens. You usually see the Dow up the least, S&P up more, and then the NASDAQ up the most. So this was kind of, an, uh, kind of an inverted day, but it's still a bull day, and it's not, nothing spectacular, but it was decent, a decent day. The uh, one thing that had got the markets kind of excited was that the uh, wholesale prices, the producer price index, actually was negative in October. In other words, a deflation of, pri uh, of prices in that market. And the, the obvious thinking is that if wholesale prices start to ease back, that would mean that uh, in a month or two, the retail prices should start to ease back. That's kind of exciting news. Uh, not only are we slowing down inflation, we are actually may be turning the corner and draining the inflation. And that, of course, means that the Fed would have very little reason to raise interest rates anymore, at least for a while. And so the markets are kind of happy about that. I would have thought that they would have been even happier, but I get the impression that there was some uh, already uh, the market uh, participants were expecting uh, favorable inflation news today. So some of that boost was already there yesterday. But anyway, uh, good day and good day for the economy and all of that. And that should, if prices start to ease back, that should stimulate some buying, more buying into the Christmas season. Even more good news. Crude oil, sliding down, back down to about 76 and a half a barrel, and that's lower energy prices. That should stimulate some driving, and of course, if you're going to drive, you might as well drive to a shopping mall. That's my philosophy anyway, but it looks good. Uh, favorable all over the place, and the gold bugs 
they had a little bit of a surge and then they started sliding back again, uh, meaning that they, the apocalypse, uh, economic apocalypse freaks are in retreat right now. And that's always happy news. Now, the bond yields, that was a little bit uh, different. The bond yields came up and they've been up today. They're up about nine basis points. Uh, in other words, uh, nine one hundredths of a percent. That's not a huge increase, and it's nothing to worry about, but we want to keep an eye on bond prices, uh, bond yields. Bond yields are up, which means that bond prices are down. That would mean that uh, investors in bonds are leaving the bonds, and they're putting some of it into cash, which is what they do these days. But it looks like some of that money that was in the safe harbor of bonds has now gone over into equities. Always good news. I forgot to check, see how the Standard Poor's was doing as far as volume goes. Really sucky volume, probably going to finish up below half of a normal day. It's really, the investors, a lot of the heavies are just staying off the side, uh, on the sidelines. But anyway, we have the euro and the pound and the yen all depreciating against the dollar. The dollar is getting stronger, and that's always good news. Stronger dollar, well, kind of good news. Stronger dollar means weaker foreign currencies. That means cheaper imports. And in the Christmas season, when imports are cheaper, that means that a lot of the stuff that we buy for Christmas coming from other countries will be a little bit cheaper as well. So that's kind of good news. The strong dollar makes imports cheaper, and it'll make oil cheaper too, uh, of course, as an import. Over on the other side of the, uh, of the Pacific last night, the Nikkei had just a nice, slow grind upward and finished up a nice 2.5%. So Japan is in a good mood. And then London, later on, London started up and it just bounced around, but it stayed positive all day. Uh, I think they're almost at the end of their trading day. I, if they haven't, I, maybe they've already finished. But it just kind of bounced around, but it stayed in positive territory. So we've got some of the uh, our trading partners and the global economy are in a good mood. And apparently that good mood is over here with us as well. So let's keep that going uh, for the time being. One thing I, I do want to look at here. Remember earlier in the semester, I showed you one called the VIX. Now the VIX is a sort of a raw measure of volatility of the markets. And the VIX, in other words, if the VIX goes up, that indicates more market volatility, more risk, low, uh, and all that good stuff. Uh, and if it's down, that means volatility is settling out, less risk in the, at least the equities, in the stocks. And as you can see, it just, it's flat right now. So that's kind of good news. Volatility isn't changing much. Now, if you look at it over the past, oh, I don't know, let's look at it over the past month. Do you see all that volatility measure? Uh, and then, as time has gone on toward the present, from later October, from later, well, actually, from early October, 
to the present, that volatility, that uncertainty, that risk is draining out of the markets. That is actually a good sign. That means that there should be an emerging confidence. Uh, uh, real investors, unless you're in exotics like derivatives, investors don't like crazy volatility. That's risk. That's not what we really want. And if you're seeing uh, that kind of uncontained risk, but as you can see, that's that uncertainty about what's coming is slowly, well, kind of rapidly in there, falling away. That is a good sign, at least for the health of the economy. It, it, it's like if I, if I saw you running back and forth, jumping up into the air and bouncing down and then digging a hole, going down and doing boing, boing, bing, boing, boing. I'd worry about you. But if you're walking along in a straight line and you're maybe a little skip, a little lilt in the foot, you know, you're a happy guy, maybe a little dip, well, that's okay. It's just when you start going boing, 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 and I think you, uh, there is, the boy is tweaking, uh, something like that, that worries me. And that's what we're seeing here. The markets are calming down. They're letting up on that uncertainty about what is to come. And that is healthy for a growing, for an economy. And it's another measure that we are coming out of a recovery. And at least within the next few months, we will be in an, in an economic expansion period. Wonderful news. So these are, these are basics, and I'm conveying these to you because these are the kinds of things that are really worth knowing if you decide that you want to be an uh, investor, not a, not a broker-dealer or anything, a Series 7. But if you want to do stocks and bonds, then in periods of stability and growth, you move toward equities. If it's a period uh, or ETFs that have stocks in them, and if it's a period of uncertainty or concern, you want to reallocate your portfolio toward bonds or bond ETFs, as it were, and get, a, get out of the way of that kind of volatility. And so this is an indication that you, as an investor who will have some money in the next uh, months and years, this is a sort of a signal that you should lean your investments toward uh, stocks. Uh, that doesn't mean you completely avoid bonds. A lot of, a lot of investors and investment advice kind of goes like this. Okay, in good times, you would m maybe allocate 75% of your f investments to stocks or to stock ETFs, and at the same time, maybe about 20% to bond ETFs, and 5% you would keep in cash, uh, in your bank accounts and things like that. Then if things get, are starting to get turned nasty, not that they have, but you're beginning to get worried, you begin to shift that portfolio and sell off some of your ETFs and, and stocks and use that money to buy into bond ETFs. Maybe start to move more toward about 50% ETF stocks, 
40% bonds and 10% cash. And then if it really begins to look pretty sure that it's going to be a bad time, you get down to the point where you may be 20% stocks and 75% uh, and, uh, well, no, I probably 20% stocks, maybe 65% uh, bonds, and then the rest in cash. In other words, moving towards safety. That's that flight to quality. That's that safe harbor investment uh, structure. It's just sort of a rule of thumb, and that means, though, that you do have to keep some eye on the markets so that you can protect your investments uh, against major swings. You're not trading every day, and you're not jerking your portfolio allocation all around the place, but you do it based upon your understandings of current markets and the prospects for what's coming down the road a little ways. Now, right now, if you, would, if, if you were to look at some of the investment gurus like uh, Jamie Dimon and uh, people like that, you would swear that we're about to go to hell in a handbasket. Listen to your own education, your own judgment, and don't take fancy people for being the absolute word of God. They are rich because of factors other than their brilliance as investors. I can assure you of that. Anyway, enough of that. Now, as I had said, this is a little bit shorter. I want to show you something here real quick. Now, I have uploaded a revised version of that project analysis spreadsheet that I was doing on Monday. I want to show you how it works, just so you can get a feel for it. I've done sort of a partial fix so that you can use uh, projects that have different lives in this. Now, if I can find it, files. Does it really have to be that hard? Spreadsheets. And I'm looking for the one project analysis. There it is. I'm going to download it and show you this newest one. Okay, here we go. Yes, enable editing. Here we go. Now let me show you what I've done here. When you use this spreadsheet, before you even look at the FCF analysis, you go to the inputs and put in the inputs, uh, enter all of the numbers that you're given. Because the front end sheet, the FCF sheet, won't will might even have errors in it until you filled in everything. And what you'll see, and I put in one here just for the shots and giggles. Equipment costs 32, uh, 320,000. Now this one, and I, sh I should highlight the ones you don't have to put in. It has got a formula after it. Then you don't have to worry about that part. Okay, so $320,000 of equipment costs, and it's eligible 100% for bonus depreciation. So you're going to kill off the whole uh, uh, gross value, $320,000, 
in the, in the initial year. We're going to have a tax rate of 25%. You can change that to 21% or whatever you wish. And then the after-tax cost of equipment will calculate for you. Then you go down and you put in how much inventory you have to buy in the initial year. And then below that you put in how much your accounts payable will increase. The difference of those is going to be your net operating working capital. It will increase or decrease. Increase it should at the beginning. So that will calculate on its own. It's got a formula beside it so you know that it's being calculated for you. Now the sales. You'll put in the number of units you're selling and the price per unit. And then the gross revenue will calculate on its own. Sales times price. And then the variable cost, you can put in whatever you want for variable cost. Is it 60% of sales, 40%, whatever. And then you put in your raw salvage value and your book value, which should be zero for the problems that I would give you and what the book gives you too. So you ca calculate your taxable salvage value, which is your actual salvage value minus the book. So the remainder is going to be uh, tax. So $25,000 of salvage you pay, you're going to get for it. You don't get to hack off any remaining book value. So you're exposed to $25,000 minus zero. So you're exposed to $25,000 in tax, uh, exposed to $25,000 of taxable salvage value. And then you calculate, this will calculate your after tax. You don't have to do those. Now, the life of the project. In this example here, it's four. But I've made it so that you can make it another number. You're going to have to do something on the front end sheet if it's a number bigger than four. Now the weighted average cost of capital is 10%. Now here I've put in the investment rate in case you need to calculate a modified internal rate of return. Now we go over here. Watch what happens if I say the life of the project is five years. it fills it in automatically. Now the one thing that you will have to do here, I caution, is that if it's five years, now I've made it for that here, but if it's like six years, you just take the first year's formula and you just drag it and copy it down. If it's six years, I would have dra uh, dragged it down one more. Now a formula will show up there, but nothing is, there's no action, okay? So if I drag this down, watch what would happen if I do, watch what I mean if you do six years. Suppose I put in a six year project there. Okay, now notice that the salvage value doesn't calculate. The salvage value will calculate only at the terminal year of the project. 
Do you see that? Make sure you see that. It's doing it for you. Essentially, it's an if statement. If we are not at the final year, if this year count isn't the same number as the life of project count, it'll just do the normal formula. It'll, only, it'll do the, nor, the fancy formula only if you are at the last year of the project. Otherwise, it'll just calculate a normal year's cash, uh, uh, no path, or whatever. Well, that sucked. <laughs> and the NPV and the IRR will calculate automatically, and the MIRR will calculate automatically for this. And as you can see, this sucks. It, it, the project is negative NPV. Watch what would happen if I change the years back to <coughs> five. Isn't that cool? See it? Your salvage value is occurring one year earlier, so that will boost the net present value. But the one thing that I do caution, and I can't, I can't fashion a way to do this without a macro. You will have to copy cell, the first cell, cell B3, down as far as you have numbers to pull this, to do it. Ugh, it's just one of those things. I can't think of a way. I'm sure there is, but I can't think of a way without writing macros. And as I said, you, if I put macros in this, I can't upload it because the server's flag, you've got macros. You might be trying to put a virus into, into our servers. So it gets touchy about that. But anyway, there it is. That should, for a quiz and for the final, that should get you through a project free cash flow problem. It's uh, just make sure, again, get your numbers all in. Just get them all in there. And don't do anything if you see a formula. You, that'll calculate. And then once you've done that, go back over. And if you need to fill in more, uh, more years, just drag the first one down. That's my, essentially, that's my key keyframe formula. And you copy it down, and it, but copy it down only as many years as a project is. That's the only place where you kind of have to think about what you're doing along the way. And you can do some practice on this, try different years. And you might have to add, a, if you got like a 10-year project, you'd probably have to add a few, uh, insert a few rows here so that you'd have room for it. But there you are, it's all done. And, and I did that all for you with my own tired arthritic hands because I love you. <clears throat> no, I don't. I just wanted to have you not bitch at me because these, these problems can get a little intensive, especially now I can even sophisticate this uh, sheet so that you could have different cash flows in different years. I mean, it, it wouldn't be that hard to do it, but. I'll make it like this one on a quiz or the final exam. Now I want to go on and show you, first I'll give you an actual example of it. Uh, mutually exclusive projects. 
You can have one or you can have the other, but you can't have both. Now, here's the weird thing. They might both be good projects, but you can see this kind of strange thing happen where, let's say you've got project A and you've got project B. And project A has an NPV, net present value, of $2,800 and an internal rate of return of 7.45%. Project B has a net present value of $2,200, but it has an internal rate of return of 9.05%. You can't do both of these. It looks like, at least from the NPV standpoint, that both of them you should accept. But you might not be able to accept both of the projects. I'll tell you a place where I, I, I the last time I saw this was a relatively small company. It wasn't too far from here. They had a, they had a, piece of one, they had some land and land was not that easy to come by where they wanted to do their thing they needed new office uh, office space and it was pretty specialized so they were going to have to they saw the need to put together a relatively modest two-story office building but they also needed that land they could use that land to put up some of their, uh, an expansion of their manufacturing facilities. They could not do both of them. Obviously, if you put one on that land, you couldn't put the other. And they both came out to be like this. It came out like this. They were both positive NPV projects at the discount rate uh, that they were using. But they had the uh, internal rates of return were telling them that the decision from NPV standpoint would be the, exactly the opposite of what it would be from the internal rate of return point of view. So you have mutually exclusive projects. You gotta choose one or the other. What do you do for something like that? Now, there is an old rule, and, and I'll give you this one first. Always go with NPV. However, you have to be sure that you're doing using a good uh, discount rate. And you might not want to use the same discount rate for one project as you do for the other. In the example I gave you, the office building was actually a lower risk project than the manufacturing facility was. So the discount rate for the NPV of the office building should be a little lower than it would be for the industrial uh, facility. So you gotta look, take that into consideration. But all other things being equal, if you've got a choice between one and the other, take the NPV, the higher NPV. Generally speaking, NPV is theoretically a stronger measure and in data from past experiences, we see that if you go with NPV, you're more likely to have success 
with the uh, decision you made than if you go with the uh, internal rate of return method. It's just that's how it works. However, let's look at something here. Now the thing is that projects that are mutual exclusive, they are very unlikely to have the same life, uh, life of project. And so we, it's not really correct to look at NPV and IRR just as raw numbers because the life of a project has an impact on the outcome of the net present value and internal rate of return approach. Take it like this. You could have a project that is a longer term project, but its cash flows occur out after more than a few years. And you compare that to a project which has a very short life, big uh, cash flows right off the bat. Comparing their NPVs just on their own might not be a good idea. Take this one. Let's say that we have project A and it has a timeline that looks like this. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And I'm just going to put some numbers in here. The output, uh, the outflow from project A is let's say $30,000. And then it will put in 6,000 in year one, 10,000 in year two. Oh, that's year zero. Sorry about that. Draw that line a little better. And then in year three, Let's say 12,000 and then 5,000. Let's say 8,000 and your after tax, and this is 3, 4, then 4,000 and you've got an after tax salvage of last year with 4,000 and some extra of 7,000. Project B takes 25,000 out the door and then 10,000, then 18,000, and then it takes on a final value, it just dies off at 6,000. Well, no, let me make this, let me make this more realistic. 12,000, instead of 18,000, put that as 12,000. So, 
Suppose that we use a weighted average cost of capital for it, discounted at 8%. And I'm going to bring up a completely new sheet here. Close. Do this new. Make this bigger for us. Okay. Year. Free cash flow A. Free cash flow B. Year zero. Sequence. What was my longest one? Seven years. Hmm. We think here. I'm okay. Trying to think of this on the fly. Sequence. B2. Let's do this again. Del. One. Then sequence. Equals sequence. Probably would have been easier just to do this, but I should use the sequence starting with one. Forget it. I'm just going to do it stupid way. Four, five, six. Did I have six? Yeah. Okay, cash flow from A is negative 30,000, then 6,000. Oops. And 6,000. Then, I can't even see my own numbers here. 10, 12, 8, 4, 10, 12, 8, 4, and I had 7,000 at the end. Project B. I have negative 25,000, then 10, 12, 
six. Ten. Twelve. And six. And we'll take a weighted average cost of capital of ten percent. Now we'll do the NP. Oh no, I'm sorry. That was what was that? Eight percent. I'm sorry. Eight. And now we'll do the net present value. And the internal rate of return equals NPV for the net present value of the, whoops, I gotta do the, I keep forgetting that, equals the cash outflow plus the NPV of the cash inflows. And I forgot to put in my weighted average cost of capital. Positive NPV. Now we'll do the NPV equals for B cell C two plus NPV of the weighted average cost of capital, comma, the cash flows from this one. Ooh, negative NPV. Internal rate of return for the project A equals, just take all those numbers from year zero to the end for the first one. What did I just do there? That was weird. Forgot to put in the IRR. 15%. 15.33%. Good deal. Okay, for the second project equals internal rate of return of those four years, year zero through year three, 6%. Okay. Here's the problem. Is that this is not necessarily the best way to do it. Here's how we, here's the trick that we use. We can say, okay, we could go with project A, or we could do project B twice, repeat it. So, in other words, I could say, that in the third year, the last year of Project B, let's try that again. We could do it over again, starting at year three. And I'm labeling FCFB repeat. So that we have two projects of the same life. How much would that cost us? Well, it would 
actually equal the sum of the two, the free cash flows would be the sum of the two projects. For the first th two, for years zero, one, and uh, zero, one, and two, we would have just the cash flows from the first project. So the sum of the project and its repeat would just be the first project. But it would actually be repeated. So in that third year, your last year of the first instance of the project B, you'd get 6,000, but you'd spend 25,000. So the net effect would be losing 19,000. <coughs> but then project B would kick in, instead of nothing in years four through six, you get Project B's cash flows over again, the 10,000, 12,000, and 6,000. So in other words, the repeat of B would equal the net present value, whoops, would be that plus the NPV at the discount rate, the weighted average cost of capital, of years one, years one, years zero through six of the second project. Well, that's suck.com. <laughs> I was kind of hoping it'd be a little bit better than that, but look at that. Well, that sure kicked my ass. <laughs> Gotta think my numbers through a little clearer so I can get an example that works looks better but as you can see not only does cap uh, does that does project a dominate project b the first in the simple analysis it really dominates it in the uh, second mutual exclusive repeat the project the shorter project life again But there you go. That's how you would do it. I'm curious to see what the internal rate of return would look like. Well, there's something else. i got to watch out for it here, too. The internal rate of return, I, I can't really use the internal rate of return on this. It's the same. Really? Oh, I get it. Okay, do you see why I can't use the internal rate of return on the repeat version of Project B? It's because it has more than one switch in the sign of the cash flow. So in other words, I have to use the modified internal rate of return. So I need to find a reinvestment rate. Oh, shut up. The reinvestment rate, let's say the reinvestment rate is 
So in order to do the modified internal rate of return, MIRR, I would have to go over here and atta attack this project again, equals MIRR, and you give it all of the values, then you give it the financing rate, your weighted average cost of capital, then comma, give it the reinvestment rate. Whoops. Ooh. That makes sense now. The modified internal rate of return is actually somewhat better. It's still not as good as Project A, but you have to recognize that if you are going to do this repeat trick, you have to use a modified internal rate of return because most likely you'll have a dip in, you'll, have, you'll go negative somewhere along the line in the repeat when you have to start a new version of the project again. Isn't that interesting? Ouch. Yeah. That's interesting. But that is how you do an uh, repeat internal rate of return. Now, there's another place where this happens, uh, where you got something you can put on it's the same piece of land. There's another place where you can see mutually exclusive projects. It doesn't sound like it at first, but this is actually something that happens in, in projects that have more technology in them. A company could have, has two choices. It can buy electronic equipment, computers, something like that that costs less, but they have a short life. Or it could buy computers, let's say, that cost more, but they have a longer life. They're more future-proofed. That's another example of mutual exclusive. You can go cheap and then have to replace them in three years. Or you can go expensive and not have to replace them for six or seven years. And that, that, that's this all over again. And this is something that, that is actually quite normal these days with, uh, computer, with uh, companies that use computers or anything that is more technology related. The big one right now is deciding on whether or not what you're going to do with these new electric vehicles. There's a general sentiment that the technology is going to be much better in about four years. So what you could do is you could stick with diesel fossil fuel cars for the time being and then replace those when the technology was better in the electric vehicles. But you could also just go with the uh, electric vehicles now and know that you are going to have to throw them out in three or four years. You have to make a decision one way or the other. So do we postpone the time when we transition to a greener 
technology so that it is better or do we go with it now and just suffer the consequences? That's true even with home consumers who buy into new technologies. We know that some consumers will buy a new technology as soon as it comes out the door and it will probably not last very long at all. Or they could wait a few years until the technology is stabilized and then buy and have it last a lot longer. The classic example of that is what happened with the first generation of flip and fold phones. The first generation were expensive and they did, wouldn't last they just weren't going to last because obviously the materials technology for the face of them was going to get better. So you had some consumers grab in, buy on the first round, and then they had to replace them within it two to three years with ones that had better technology and were also cheaper simply because there were more competitors for them. Samsung steps into the market on its own with very expensive flip phones and fold phones. About three years ago, was it? They were terrible and they were very expensive. Then the technology, they're clear into, I believe, their fourth generation now or the fifth generation. The faces are much less vulnerable to folding and to cracking. And on the other, also, Motorola's in the game, and a couple of other companies are in the game now, so the prices are lower. So who are the early buyers? Interestingly enough, wealthier people who could afford the, higher, uh, the lower NPVs of their projects. So there's a good example of the decision-making that goes on in companies all the time these days. Do we buy now? and have a short life, or do we wait, or do we spend more money and have a longer life, or wait and have a longer life? That's the mutually exclusive part of chapter 12, and that is all I have for you today. I thank you.